Amen. Thank you so much. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles. <clears throat> Join me as we get started this morning. We're going to start in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 for our first part of our message this morning. In fact, let me uh, just caution you that I am extremely nervous about what I'm presenting this morning because I'm not preaching. I'm not doing what we typically do. Rather, what we said that we had asked you as a congregation as we were doing a series recently on end times, we had said that what we wanted to do was to give you an opportunity to turn in cards, to give a questions, and that we would spend a service or two and just do a Q&A time of answering your questions that you had about some of the things that we presented. Today is the day that I set aside that we would do that morning and evening and figure out where we go from here. And in order to get something into your hands this morning that might be helpful, I found a couple charts that I thought would be helpful for you to have to be able to reference that give you an idea about some of the events. This comes from a tract that if you uh, look in, in uh, and follow it through online, you can print out a whole tract that gives some information to help some individuals out, like if you have unsaved loved ones, co-workers, classmates, that you want to leave something behind, this is something you could give them with further explanation. But it gives you the basic ideas of some of the events that are future to us. If you're unfamiliar with what we've talked about, we've had 25 messages on this topic. I'm not going to finish everything and fill in all of this in 25 minutes. Uh, in, in 20, it's taken 25 plus hours in just a few minutes, but let me just give you a summary. We are in what's called on the left-hand side, we're in the church age. At any moment, Jesus Christ could come from heaven as described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting with verse 13, where he says, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning, the thing, concerning them who are asleep or who have died, that we sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which are asleep in Christ, those who are dead, will God bring with him. This we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or hinder those who have already died or who are asleep. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds." to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord, wherefore comfort one another with these words. That's the event on this chart where some of you think it's jets going up with a yellow stream. Those are people. They're all of a sudden disappearing, flying off the earth. That is an event called the rapture as described in this text. After the rapture, we go to heaven and we spend time in heaven where Jesus Christ will reward us for our labors. Here on earth, sometime after that, begins the worst seven years in all of human history. Jesus described it as the tribulation. He said it's the worst time in all of history and if he didn't cut it short, nobody would survive. At the end of that period of time, oh, and by the way, during this time of that seven years, Antichrist, 666, Armageddon, one world religion, um, one world currency, all those things are taking place. And then at the end of that time period, Jesus Christ is going to physically come from heaven down to earth itself. First time he came, he came to the clouds. Now he's coming all the way to planet Earth, right at the height of the Battle of Armageddon. He'll stop the battle, rescue the Jews who are left, and then he will have a judgment of the people who are alive at that time. It's called, Matthew 25 talks about it as the sheep goat judgment. 
Then there's going to be a, a, just a replenishing of this earth, getting it fixed up, because he starts a thousand-year kingdom. During that thousand-year kingdom, everybody has to obey Jesus. People will be born during that time period. But some of those people <clears throat> born during that time period, they'll obey Jesus, but they really haven't surrendered their heart to Jesus. So at the end of the thousand years, Satan's going to have the opportunity to go to those people and say, Jesus or me. They'll pick Satan because they want to be able to do their own thing. And they will rebel against Jesus. They will come and battle him at Jerusalem. <clears throat> Excuse me, one more time. And Jesus will put an end to that battle. And then we have the great white throne judgment where mankind are judged for whether they're going to heaven or to hell. Actually, the people judged will all be determined to go to hell. We will already have been in heaven. Then the heaven and the earth are destroyed and a new heaven and a new earth for all eternity is established, Revelation 20 and 21. That's taken me 25 messages up to this point. So to explain it all, I'm going quickly. But you had questions. And so I wanted to give you charts, I give you some information, and then delve into some of your questions like this one. It is often said that Jesus could come back at any moment. I just said it. Okay, again, to rapture us, but don't certain things still have to happen before he comes back? If so, it couldn't be any moment, right? Okay, here's the answer to that. The answer to that is this. The Bible frequently talks about with the idea that at any moment we, we watch, we wait. Repeatedly, you have verses in the New Testament that give the impression clearly that Jesus is coming back. We read it this morning. We are looking right now for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. He is coming soon. And so every indication Scripture is it's any moment. It could happen at any moment. However, at the time when these passages were written, there was a couple prophecies that needed to be fulfilled. Even though the writers were saying it could happen any moment, any moment. Do you remember when Jesus was you know, with his disciples in the last 40 days? That one time he was on the shore of Galilee and they were out fishing. And he told them, drop your nets. They got a great amount of fish and they realized that was Jesus on the shore. So Peter jumped in, comes up to the shore, and he's joining Jesus and, and talking with him. Then come the other disciples. In that conversation, Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? You remember this conversation? Yes, no? Okay. He says, do you love me? And Jesus and Peter converse. Then Peter, or Jesus says to Peter, Peter, when you get old, you're going to be tied up and you're going to be led about. So Jesus just there predicted that Peter would grow old, he would then be imprisoned. That was at the same time that they're saying, I could come back at any moment. Then Jesus also gave another prediction. In Matthew 24, if you look at the first two verses, in Matthew 24 he says that there's going to come a time when this temple will be torn down. One stone will not be left upon another. Do you remember what year that happened? When 70 A.D., so even though they were writing and they were saying it could happen at any moment, those two verses indicate, well, Jesus knew he was going to come back after those were fulfilled. But you say, are there more predictions that go beyond that? No. No. So since that time, we don't, we don't have any other predictions we're waiting for. There isn't any other prophecy, specific prophecy in the New Testament that has to be fulfilled before he comes back. Now, I grant you this. Are there some things 
that we are seeing before the rapture that help to establish events in the tribulation? The answer is yes. In the tribulation, we know this. We know that there's going to be a mark of the beast, yes? Yes. Okay, we got it. There's going to be a mark of the beast. And the mark is 666. We know there's going to be one world currency. We know that the temple will be rebuilt. During, and it has to be rebuilt because in the middle of the tribulation, where does Antichrist go and sit? In the temple proper, in the Holy of Holies, and claim to be God. We know there's a ten-nation confederacy. All the events that we see are leading up to that. The technology that we have today, does it make possible to have a mark in your hand? Oh yeah, oh yeah. And so we, we're seeing that. That helps to say to us, oh we're getting close, we're getting close. However, keep this in mind. Not a single one of those events has to happen before the rapture. The temple may not be rebuilt until after the rapture. In the first part of the tribulation, it could be rebuilt. We also don't know how many days, weeks, months between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation. So, so some of these things, though they're interesting to watch, they don't have to happen before the rapture, which brings us to this conclusion. There isn't a singular prophecy that needs to be fulfilled before the rapture. It could happen any moment. Okay, here's another question. Is one of the prophecies that the generation that saw Israel come back into the land, that they will not pass away before the Lord returns? Go to Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24. Your question comes from this text and what some people have explained in Matthew 24. Let me explain it from their perspective so that you'll see where it comes from and then I'm going to explain it the way I understand the scriptures teaches. <laughs> okay, we're in Matthew 24. The context of Matthew 24, which by the way, it also the same, the same idea shows up in these other two passages in Mark and Luke. In Matthew 24, Jesus is telling us, here's what's going to happen in the last days. There's going to be famines, wars, rumors of war. There's going to be great deception. That's in those verses for around verse 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. There's going to be the abomination of desolation. The Jews are going to have to run into the wilderness. And then you will see the second coming of Jesus Christ, which he's just talked about in verses 27, 28, 29, 30, 31. Then verse 32. Now learn a parable, Jesus said, of a fig tree. Soon as some people see fig tree, they immediately think he's talking Israel. Because there are times in the Old Testament where God calls Israel a fig tree. And so as soon as that shows up, okay, he's got to be speaking about Israel. Therefore, he goes on, when his branch is yet tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. Oh, he's talking about Israel re-coming back into their land, becoming tender and bearing fruit. And Israel, that, that's, he's, he's referencing a prophecy about 1948, when Israel came back into the land. And then what he's doing is, so likewise when you see all these things, when you see Israel come back into the land, know that it is near even at the door. Verily I say unto you, this generation that sees Israel come back into the land shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. That is the second coming just spoken about in verses 27 through 31. That is the way some have interpreted it. And for those who interpret it that way, they all of a sudden say, oh, 
He just predicted that whenever Israel becomes back in the land, a single generation cannot pass until he comes back. Well, Israel got back in the land in 1948, and what is the length of a generation? See, you're not sure either. Okay, so 1948, and the, prophet, the, the, the scholars said 40 years is a generation. That means... By 1988, Jesus had to come back and set up his kingdom on earth. Is Jesus in control of Washington, D.C.? I don't think. Oh, he, yeah, in heaven. But I mean, is Jesus, is Jesus actually controlling earth? In, uh, is he governing right now on earth? No, no, no. So then they had to rethink the prophecy. We have to expand generation. So 1988 didn't work. It came and went. So let's make a generation being as long as people live. Three score and ten years. Or 70 years. What year would that give it? That he has to come back and rule. 2018. Okay? That Jesus would have to be back. Did Jesus get elected to the White House in 2018? No. No. Okay. So now there's the problem that we have to expand generation one more time. Why don't, we, why don't we look at the text? Why don't we take the text for what it says? The first thing the text makes very clear, look at verse 36. The first thing that he wanted to make clear is, no man knows the time. Jesus wasn't giving a calendar idea here. He's saying no man knows the time. So why are we trying to make this verse become what Jesus said it can't be? Okay. Let's look at the verse exactly what he's talking about. If we look at the context of the verse, he's talking about all of the events. These things that he's just spoken about. If you see these things, he's spoken about the beginning of the tribulation, the middle of the tribulation, the end of the tribulation. He's spoken about the coming of Jesus Christ. When you begin to see these things coming to pass then know that if you're living in that lifetime when you begin to see Antichrist going into the temple, the wars, the rumors of wars, you begin to see the treaty, you begin to see the abomination of desolation, all those things talked about in the first part of the chapter. When you see these things, if you're living in that time period, know that it's not going to go on. All that problem isn't going to go on indefinitely. You know how it is when you get a toothache in the middle of the night? How long does the night seem? When you go to a job that you absolutely hate, how long does the workday seem? Eight hours or 800? Okay? And Jesus is saying, if you're living in this horrible time period, that's the worst time period, you're going to think there's never an end to it. It just gets worse and worse and worse. Mark it down. If you are living at the time that you begin to see those things, it's going to come to pass in your lifetime. Well, we know the exact length of that time period is seven years. Jesus had made that very clear in the book of Revelation. So what he's talking about is the generation seeing those prophecies will see his coming. That it'll be an end. Or, there's another, and I prefer this, this interpretation. The word that's used for generation can also be translated nation or a specific people. Instead of a group in a time period, rather a specific ethnic group. Which then it leads to this. This nation of Israel shall not pass away until all these things be fulfilled. Okay, during the tribulation, are they trying to wipe out the Jews? 
Absolutely. The Holocaust by Antichrist is worse than ever before. And at the middle of the tribulation, Satan is kicked out of heaven and he is after Revelation 12, the woman who gave birth to the Messiah, the Jewish nation, and trying to destroy. And God is promising the nation of Israel will survive. So it's not a prophecy of giving time. It's a promise of security and God fulfilling his promises to the nation of Israel. So forget the generation being a time period. It's dealing with the people. What, what about, here's somebody had the great theological question. Will we have pets in heaven if they bring us great joy in this life? My answer to be stupid about it, okay, to be silly about it, but to give an explanation, is go to Revelation 22. Revelation 22. Do you see it? Revelation 22 talks about, maybe, animals. Revelation 22. Revelation 22. And I need to explain this first because it frequently comes up. In Revelation 22, verse 15, look at the very first phrase. Have you read it? If it's helpful, Revelation 22 comes after 21. Okay. Revelation 22, verse 15. What is not in heaven? Does that verse say that God is a cat lover? (laughs) Some of you are going, yes, I knew it all along. Okay. The phrase is, for outside or without heaven is what? Are the dogs. Okay, some people have, this comes up, does that mean there are no pets in heaven? Okay, understand that in that passage, dogs was a derogatory term. In the Old Testament, they did this frequently. Dogs weren't domesticated. They weren't pets in the ancient Near East area like, like we think of them today. Usually in the Old Testament, when they call somebody a dog, it was a real derogatory term. So when, when David comes against Goliath, Goliath even says, do you think I am a dead dog that you would come against me? Like I am just the scum of the earth? It was a derogatory term. In fact, it was sometimes used to describe people who are involved with great immorality. And so when he's saying in this passage there are no dogs in heaven, he's not saying the critter. He's talking about people who are immoral. Now read the rest of the verse. It makes perfect sense. Where he says, without are immoral people, the sorcerers, the whoremongers, the murderers, the idolaters. And so in this text, he is not talking about pets and saying God is a cat lover or God doesn't you know, cast out all animals. In answering your question, Okay, are there animals, pets in heaven? I can only answer it to the best of my ability this way. There are animals in heaven right now. The reason I know that is because when Jesus Christ comes back to this earth at the end of the tribulation, he's riding an animal, a horse. His army believers who are with him are riding horses. And we have our physical bodies at that point. So there's got to be physical animals in heaven, horses at this point. As well, I know this is true, that in the millennial kingdom when it comes to the earth, there is a listing of some animals that are there in various texts. And it talks about how kids would be playing by the hole of the viper and the asp, and so we have different animals. 
Some have suggested this, that in the new heaven and the new earth, it's going to be very similar to the original creation that we've experienced, that earth experienced, the Garden of Eden. Why? No curse. Tree of life is there. There is no temple. Rather, we're talking with God face to face. And so some suggest that in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be animals like there was in the Garden of Eden and that we will have them forever. Some even suggest that there may be new types of animals that we don't even know about. That I, 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 I don't know. But this I want to pause and just mention that, uh, that you didn't ask, but I think it's worth answering this question. You do remember that your pet is not the same as you on God's scale of creation. Animals and people were not created on the same plane. Okay, people didn't come from animals. Amen. Okay, they didn't come from animals. We are different because we people are made in the image of God. No other creature was. The angels weren't made in the image of God in that sense. Only mankind was. And mankind in relationship to animals, we have a living soul that keeps on going as, since we're in the image of God. We just keep on, keep on, keeping on. Since our conception, we have a soul with a body. Even when the body's gone, we keep on going. And so your pet is different than you. In that sense, that, that, that pet, you say, you know, is not going to go with me in heaven? It doesn't have an eternal soul. So those of you who are witnessing constantly to your pet, okay, I don't think... It, I've been asked to baptize pets, you know, in all seriousness. And it's like, no, they, they aren't the same as people. They aren't the same. And in, in fact, does the Bible indicate Jesus became an animal to die for animals? No, he became a kinsman of people. So the pets in the sense that I had, I had the world's smartest dog when I was growing up. Her name was Pebbles. She could talk to me. Okay. Do I expect to see Pebbles in heaven? No. No. Do I expect to see some animals in heaven? Yes. And I just conclusion on that is, hey, listen, enjoy your pet while you can. They are a gift. Thank God for pets. Okay. You, know, you can choose pets or kids. Thank God for pets. Okay. <laughs> pets are good. Pets are good. What happens to an individual who is forced to take the mark of the beast unwillingly? The reason that you're asking this question is Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, indicates that people who are allowed into the millennial kingdom are people who do not have the mark of the beast on them. Okay? And so therefore, the question that somebody's asking is, well, what happens if during the tribulation an individual didn't really want to follow Antichrist, but they were forced to take this mark? Does that mean they get to go into heaven or because they have the mark? Revelation 20, verse 4. They have the mark, they can't get in. This is, this is no clear passage of Scripture to explain it other than this, from my, my thinking. You know that Revelation 13 is all about that idea of the mark of the beast. It talks about only those without the mark going into the kingdom. But I want you to look at chapter 20, verse 4, real clearly. Look at it more carefully, where it says this, okay? It says these words, And which had not worshipped the beast, nor his image, and neither had received his mark upon the forehead or his, their hands. It seems to me that this passage is clearly implying that the individual even if they were forced to take the mark, if they didn't do it voluntarily, God knows the heart. That they had received. And, and if they were forced to take it, but they had not worshipped Antichrist, it seems to me that God knows the heart, 
God would look, because God looks on the heart while man looks on the outward appearance. It seems to me that if that individual, um, even if they were forced, and we don't know if that'll be the case, but it's what the heart. And, and, and let me add with this. Just because, just because, uh, how do I want to say this? Today and right now, people get all, uh, all excited about technology and saying, oh, we shouldn't use credit cards because Antichrist might use them in the future. Remember, the mark isn't just a technological advancement. In fact, personally, if we could get some type of subdermal device that would have all of our medical records, it would have all of our bank records, it would have all of our personal information, can you see a benefit to that? Yes, no? If you went to the hospital and they didn't know anything about you, could you see a benefit? If you have a teenager, you could have them marked, okay, with subdermal. Can you see a benefit of knowing where they're at? Okay. Okay. Just because somebody uses credit card or would have this mark, the idea of revelation is worshiping Antichrist. Okay. And so in that time period, it's worshiping and following him. And so technology, don't, don't get all excited about technology today as being, you know, satanic. Technology can be used good, good or evil. You can use iPhones for good or evil, yes? Some of you right now are using them for good. Oh, maybe not. Okay. <laughs> we're using this, we're using technology right now for good. Okay, it's not the technology, though, though in that time period they're so tied together. It's the idea of the worship. So, let's do this one. People who are alive at the end of the tribulation and enter into the millennial kingdom, are they saved as we know it, or are they just not following uh, Antichrist? Um, let, let's postulate on something. Do you think there could be some Americans who have no interest in religion? None at all. They could care less about Jesus Christ. Do you think there could be some constitutionalists that when Antichrist comes into a power and they're still alive on planet Earth, that they might oppose Antichrist? Do you think that's a possibility? That they might, they want, because of their constitutional rights, they want nothing to do with Antichrist and they'll oppose him. They could care less about Jesus. And maybe they might even survive to the very end. Okay? Just because they survive to the very end, that doesn't mean they go into the kingdom. The sheep-goat judgment is to determine what did they do with Jesus. I'm going to answer with a simple, question, a simple answer that says this. In John chapter 3, except a man be born again, he cannot. Except a man be born again, he cannot. Okay, so it doesn't make any difference as far as surviving to the very end and what you opposed or didn't oppose. It's, were you, were you born again? Are you saved? Okay, that's going to be the key. So are they absolutely born again? Here's a question. Will there be a difference with people in heaven? People in heaven, let's, let's do the millennial kingdom. People in the millennial kingdom, you will be there who are born again. You will have your resurrected bodies, your glorified bodies. You're going to be living there. There's going to be people born during that time period who are being born by the survivors of the tribulation who were saved. And we go into there, we have glorified bodies, they don't. Will we be able to tell by looking who's got a glorified body and who doesn't? Okay. Uh, here's, here's the best I can do. Did every time Jesus appear in a glorified body, which he had after he resurrected, did every time, did they recognize him immediately as being, whew, he's Jesus glorified? 
Can you think of occasions they didn't? The road to Emmaus. When he walked into the room, the disciples didn't even believe it. So that gets me to, lends me to believe, to think this, that we are going to be ourselves, our bodies will be improved, but it's going to be kind of like we'll blend in. It's kind of like who's vaccinated and who's not. Okay. Here's one. Question. Who are the two witnesses? Could the two witnesses, and remember Revelation chapter 13, or chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11 talks about the witnesses are being those who are opposing Antichrist in the second half of the tribulation. Those, men, those who are opposing him, they can call down fire from heaven. They are, they are near the temple proper. And nobody can touch them. And they're prophesying. And they're speaking for God. And then at the end of that time period, God will all of a sudden take his protection off them. And Antichrist will kill them. And their bodies will lie in the streets for three and a half days. And then all of a sudden they're going to come back to life and they're going to ascend to heaven and the whole world will see that. And so we have that straight. Somebody is asking, could those, t- those two that are called witnesses, could they be two big groups of people? I'm so glad you asked this question because this allows me to go on a tangent. Okay. <laughs> The tangent is this. When you study the Bible, you need to understand it with keeping certain facts and references in mind. You need to understand how to interpret it, and that means basically you have to follow somewhat of a formula. Come and join me. My wife and I are going to try something here for you. By the way, we celebrate this week our anniversary. Okay? And as we've gotten to be... Well, if you're going to go that far, where's the gifts? No, uh, we've been together for how many years? Okay, you set a number for a change. She always says, as long as you. Okay. In fact, she gave me this wonderful card this week. It is so wonderful being married to the greatest spouse in the whole world. Isn't it, dear? Okay, I need somebody to volunteer. Danny, you're a graduate. You just got out of high school. Come on up. You're welcome. I need you to do something for me. Okay, when she leaves, you're going to pick an object. Come all the way up. Everybody wants to see you. Okay, Um, you're going to pick an object in this room, and you're going to tell us what the object is. She's going to go over there, hold her ears. She won't be able to hear. And when she comes back, she and I are going to... Uh, communicate, and she's going to tell us what the object is. Okay, got it? Okay, go away. Go. Okay. You're out of here. Okay. You, gotta, you can pick something, anything. Let's make sure that... Don't worry, she can't hear. Um, she, okay. Pick an object. Okay. Let me get... Wifey! Yo, woman. Okay, we got to do our 43 years of communication. Okay, here we go. Uh, is it, is it the, the plant over here? No. Is it the organ? No. 
Is it the microphone? No. Is it Ruzan? No. Uh, is it uh, the third flag in? No. Is it a water bottle over here? Yes. <laughs> How do we do it? Telepathy. Telepathy. <laughs> you graduated? <laughs> Do it again. Have you figured out how we're doing it? Okay, watch. Okay. Give, me, give me another update. Thank you, by the way, for doing this. I appreciate it. You'll never speak to me again, will you? No. no. Uh, the TV. The TV, is it? Okay. TV. If you didn't hear me, the TV. Deborah, come back. Here we go. Okay, she's got it. Uh, is it the hanging light? No. Is it the uh, plant behind you? No. Is it the uh, screen on which we project? No. Is it the TV at the back of the auditorium? Yes. It's not telepathy. You figured it out? The uh? the uh? Is it uh, uh, Oh, this is going to be so hard not to do. It's not that, but I'll show you. Okay. Okay. I made this one difficult. Okay. The water fountain that's over there. Here we go. I would have done the do 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 do, but some people wouldn't know what I'm doing. Okay. Here we go. Um, should I just not do ums totally? Four ums? Is it the notebook that is on the side of the pulpit? No. Is it the water fountain in the foyer? Yes. No ums. <laughs> and it wasn't number four. You figured it out? Thank you. I owe you a big time. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. okay. That's it. That's absolutely. That's the last thing. Oh, you're going out that way. Okay. Um, it has nothing to do with the number of times. It had nothing to do with pointing. It had nothing to do with gestures. It had to do with colors. We chose a color, and we chose the red, white, and blue. The first time it was the object after red. I picked that flag, so whatever it was, it was going to come after that. The second time, it was going to be after white. I picked the screen. Anything I said after that was it. The last time, it was blue, and I almost forgot to put it up here. Um, <laughs> and so it was the object after that.
And so there's nothing great or special, and we are not doing telepathy. Okay, but thank you. <laughs> thank you for that, that kind um, endorsement. When you study your Bible, if you know the... I, I don't know what term to use. If you know the code of, of getting into the Word of God, that's a terrible word of using. But if you know how to approach it, it makes perfect sense. You can figure out passages on prophecy. Therefore, when we approach the Bible, we have to keep certain things in mind which help us to interpret, to understand what's going on. What you have to, in order to understand your Bible at any time, especially prophecy, the first thing that has to happen is that key to understanding prophecy is you need to be born again or saved. You need to be redeemed because the Holy Spirit who inspired the Bible, where does he move in once you get born again, once you get saved? He moves into your heart. Everybody who's converted becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit who regenerated you. He moves in. Well, that same Holy Spirit who wrote the Bible, he helps you, according to 1 Corinthians 2, he helps you to understand it. So the key to understanding the Bible is, first of all, becoming a Christian, becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, being willing to let the Spirit teach you by, first of all, saying, Holy Spirit, you need to forgive me of all my sin, cleanse me, give me regeneration, all that, those concepts. Then when you start approaching it from a human perspective, keep this in mind, you need to do a literal approach to the Word of God. A literal approach to God is basically saying this, when the plain sense makes common sense, seek no other sense. For instance, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life, no man comes unto the Father but by me, what does he mean by that? What's the plain sense? Basically, how many ways to heaven? Just one. Okay. When Jesus says, I am the door, do you automatically think he has a knob? and hinges? No, you understand the plain sense it is a, a figure of speech that, that he just, for instance, you're gonna, some of you are thinking right now, I'm so hungry I could die. Okay, are you really dying? Really? It, you're using it as a figure of speech to just, you know, give a heightened idea of it. So when we approach scriptures, we want to be able to say, okay, a literal approach is understanding when there's figures, when there's metaphors, we understand that way. When there's numbers, we understand the numbers are given because they mean numbers. Okay, and so when it says, are there two witnesses, then we automatically assume there's how many? There's two. There's two. Otherwise, in that same text of Revelation 11, then you have to change all the numbers. Two witnesses. Oh, okay, if we change the two, it means we take 42 months, and all of a sudden, they don't mean 42 months anymore. When you take the uh, three and a half days that they lie in the street, oh, that, that number can't mean three and a half. All of a sudden, you, who determines what it means? A literal approach, take it, the plain sense makes common sense. You also have to keep this key in mind. When the Bible was written, the Bible was written... Uh, if I'm going out of the screen, sorry. Uh, if the Bible is written, it's like a staircase. One bit of revelation and prophecy builds upon another. Sometimes they didn't, when they were writing in the Old Testament, they didn't have as much information as we do. And so when we understand and we study our Bible, we should, in order to understand, we should understand what prophecies were given in their order.
Some of you who start Bible studies, you're brand new Christian, you say, I want to start a Bible study, I'm going to go to the book of Revelation. My hat off to you, but I would just advise you, why don't you study some other foundational passages first? And when you're studying prophecy, start with some of the others. By the way, the most key foundational passage on understanding prophecy is Daniel chapter 9. Verses 24 through 27. It is the key that Jesus built on and the key that is built on elsewhere. As well, when you're studying the scriptures, there is an approach that you need to take which is more literal, which understands what I just said. It is called dispensational approach. The reason I'm bringing it up, and some of you are going to go, okay, this is way over my head, and it's not is because this is, if you go to the internet, this is what you're going to either find or not find. And it's going to be critical in your conclusions. If you go to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians 1, please, for those of you who are knowledgeable in your Bible, this is going to make perfect sense. So I fear that some who, who don't have a grip on Scripture, I might lose you. I, I, I don't think that's the bulk of you. I, I think all of you can understand this, but you have to follow. Go to Ephesians 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Start with verse, Ephesians 1, start with verse 10. And we're going to look at just a few, a few words here, but they open up the whole understanding of your Bible. If you don't understand, if, if, if you've never talked about it, this is huge in understanding your Bible. He's going to use a word, dispensation or stewardship. Okay, it's going to show up in this passage. It comes from the original word, oikonomia. Oikonomia was the idea of Joseph was an economist to Potiphar. He was in charge. He was a steward. He was given responsibilities. God, during a period of time, has given certain responsibilities, certain jobs at certain periods of times in history to different individuals, sometimes groups of people. Where we understand this passage teaching or referring or, or just basically assuming you know is that throughout history there was different periods of time or dispensations where God had different responsibilities or requirements for people. For instance, let me show you one of those dispensations. Chapter 1, verse 10. Chapter 1, verse 10, he makes this comment. He says in that verse that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ both which are in heaven and which are on earth. Okay, He calls it the dispensation of the fullness of times. It is clearly referring to something in the future tense as the original language points out something future to the Apostle Paul. He describes it as a time when all the believers will be united. Those from heaven, those from earth. There is only one time that we know of in scriptures where this is happening. The millennium and the eternity beyond. When all saints of all ages are united together. Okay, and so he's referring to a future event, a future dispensation. Where will there be different responsibilities when we're living there than there is now? The answer is yes. Our worship will change. During that time period, once again, all of a sudden, what is built that people will go to? The temple. And there will be sacrifices. There will be a difference in that regard than what we do, okay, during that time period, our responsibilities. He mentions another one of these dispensations in chapter 3. Go to Ephesians 3. Look at verse 2, okay? But if you get this, you'll get your whole Old Testament, New Testament will come together like never before. Ephesians chapter 3. 
Uh, he says, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of grace of God which is given to me to give to you, or to you word. Okay, this time he calls it the dispensation of grace. He says it was given to me and I'm giving it to you, which makes it a present tense to the when Paul was writing, which he says I am a minister of at this time. He's described it as a mystery a mystery of Christ. Later on he uses that same idea in chapter 5 that the union that believers have with, Je with Jesus, like a husband and wife union, is the mystery of the church with Christ. That they are united into one body. He says as well in chapter 3, he mentions that there was a time period unlike this dispensation of grace because there was a time period which in the past it wasn't that way. But now the Jews and the Gentiles are one. They're united. They are, and that was the problem in Ephesus. That was the problem in the book of Acts. The believers, the Jews and the Gentiles were, were dividing. And he says, no, you're one in Christ. Keep together. That's because in this dispensation we are one in Christ. There is no difference between Jew or Greek. There is no difference between male and female. There's no difference between bond and free, rich and poor. In value and in the, what, what God gave you as far as salvation, it's the same for everyone. And so he says this, that's happening in this dispensation. He mentions in that same context in other ages, other dispensations in the past, where he refers to the idea that it wasn't this way. Was there, prior to the church, was there a time period where Jews and Gentiles separated? Yes or no? Oh, yes. We call that the period of, okay, the law. The law. The law of Moses, which said that the Jews should be very distinct from the Gentiles. And that law of Moses lasted for a long time until Jesus uh, was crucified, rose again, and then he ended it. Before the law, which by the way, there was a time period before the law, yes? The law only came with Moses. So what about before that time, prior to the law? Was there other types in the early ages of man, were there other dispensations where people had different responsibilities? Um, yes. Did Adam and Eve have different responsibilities than you? Yes. Okay. They had specific commands that they were supposed to keep. One is tend the garden. You haven't been given that. Be fruitful and multiply. One is do not eat of the tree of life. They had specific responsibilities. Then when they failed, there was a new dispensation that came that they were supposed to operate a certain way. They were supposed to spread through all the earth. They never did that. There was a, and it, it comes all the way through time. If I can illustrate it better with, with this whole idea, it, let me just clarify. We're saying that in your, worth, uh, in your work and in your worship, there was different responsibilities. However, salvation has always been the same. Salvation in the sense that God, you, in order to get into heaven, in order to be saved individual, to be redeemed, you had to believe in God's provision of salvation. Never in all of history, never did people get saved, redeemed, whatever term you want to use. Never did they get redeemed by their own works of righteousness. It's always been whatever God provided. 
And how do we get and obtain what God, what do we have to show to God for salvation? Something very simple. Faith. Faith. It's all the way through scriptures. Listen closely, and I know this is heavy duty, I'm almost done with this portion, but listen closely, where he starts talking about this whole idea of people being saved, being redeemed, being coming believers all by faith. I'm going to jump to the book of Romans, and he's talking about Abraham. Abraham was before the law. Abraham was in a different time frame. For what says the scriptures? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. He goes a little bit further in the same passage, and he says this, For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham to accede through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. He makes it very clear. For if they were of the law, the the heirs because of the law, then faith is made void. He goes a little bit further in the same text. And being weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither that the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory unto God. And therefore it was imputed to him righteousness. But for us also to whom shall be imputed that same righteousness if we believe on him that raised up Jesus from the dead. In the book of Galatians, the the writer there made it very clear where he says this. And again, please bear with me. Just listen. Even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same become the children of Abraham. We go a little bit further in in that same passage where he says in this text, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Cursed is every one that hangs from the tree, that the blessing of Abraham comes on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. He says, but the scripture hath concluded all our under sin that by the promise uh, by faith of Jesus Christ we might be given to them that believe. It's all about believing. It's always been about believing. Believing in God's provision of salvation. However, in showing your faith, in, ex- in, a, in having real faith, what does James say? Faith without works is... Okay, to show if you have real faith, you're going to do certain works. You're going to uh, worship a certain way. In the Old Testament, under the law, under the Mosaic law, how did they worship? What were some of the things that they did that are different from us? Sacrifice. The temple. We can just list it up. They had priests. They had sacrifices. They had the temple. They had a dietary law. They had as well feast days. They had Sabbath rules, Sabbath laws. They had, the uh, boys had to be circumcised. They had to separate from the Gentiles. Do we oblige this today? No, we're, why not? We're under a different dispensation. We're under a different code of rules whereby our faith is expressed. Instead of priests, what do we have? We have the priesthood of the believers, all of you, any of you can go at the same time. We don't offer sacrifices. We do communion in retrospect. We have the church. We have any food we can receive with thanksgiving. We have Sunday worship. We have the unity of the Jews and the Gentiles. Converts get baptized as soon as possible. We don't have the priests and the high priests. We have pastors and deacons. Some churches have said that their priests become the high priests and they call them popes. Okay? We don't believe that. Why? We're under a different dispensation. 
And so in that whole time period, not only did God have different requirements, but the way that he dealt with individuals in the Old Testament uh, under the law was different. The Holy Spirit didn't come and come on uh, people the same way as you. Maybe some of you would get the Holy Spirit for a short period of time. But when Jesus came and put us under the dispensation of grace, how long does the Holy Spirit stay on you? Forever. Where is he? He's in you. He's in all of you who are believers. And so it's a way different. The Jews were to be the, the, the witness in, the, in that period of the law. If you were going to convert, you had to become a Jew. Today we don't do that anymore. We have church. It's totally different. Why? We're in a different dispensation. The reason this is so critical is when you're interpreting the Bible, you have to interpret which dispensation are we dealing with. Like the tribulation is the last seven years of the law. It's part of that law. It's part of the 490 years. We'll talk about that next time. Okay. So that brings us to these two witnesses, even though that's real depth. The idea is a literal interpretation says, hey, wait a minute. We're talking about not two, two masses of people. The number is two. And when you compare, look at chapter 11. Look at verse 3. They're called witnesses. What are they called in verse 10? What's that? prophets, okay? And so you don't have two large groups. I know you have a large group of witnesses earlier in the book of Revelation. You have 144,000. But you don't have a mass number of prophets anywhere in the book of Revelation. The, 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 all the Jews are not prophets. So to say, well, they're two big groups of people. That doesn't make any sense in this text. It's just take it for its literal idea that two big large groups of people with hundreds and thousands of them doesn't fit the context at all. In fact, how, how do you two big massive groups of thousands of people lying dead in the temple proper for days? Makes no sense. Two bodies lying in the temple of two individuals, that makes perfect sense. You can see it happening and not becoming a social crisis or a, a crisis from all. Besides... Most of the Christian church has been removed. And what were the Jews told to do? The two prophets go to the temple and they're opposing Antichrist. During this three and a half years, they're speaking against him. What were the Jews told to do when they see these things happening? Were they told to confront Antichrist or were they told to... Matthew 24, they're told to flee into the wilderness. The mass, the great number of them. So the idea that this could be uh, the, all the Jews makes no sense. It contradicts the other passages. It's two individuals. It's two individuals, not two large groups of people. What is the role of the Holy Spirit during the tribulation? Well, the role of the Holy Spirit is what I just alluded to, that the Holy Spirit is going to, like he did through all time, through all history, he's convicted people all the way through. One of his jobs is convicting. He's the agent the Bible tells us, who brings regeneration, imparts new life within the hearts of individuals. During the Old Testament era of the law, he would come and go upon people, come and go, come and go, assist believers or unbelievers at different times. Under the new covenant that Jesus started with this age of grace, the Holy Spirit came and indwells every believer always, forever. And so what happens during the tribulation, okay? We're removed, 
the permanent indwelling of this time period is no longer in existence. We're doing again, since the last seven years is the end of the law, we're going back to what happened during the, during the uh, law period. The Holy Spirit can come and go. The Holy Spirit is convicting of sin. He is creating regeneration. So people are getting saved during that time period because the Holy Spirit is working like he did in the Old Testament, trying to bring people to salvation. And so uh, that the big change is going to be the indwelling of the Spirit is, is, as we understand, the same as it was in the Old Testament coming and going. Is there any evidence that saints in heaven are able to observe what is happening here on earth? Um, I'm going to start with that tonight. Okay, we'll, we'll get ahead. Here's a question lots of you asked. Will babies go to heaven? And what will they be like? Come back tonight. Okay, tonight I'll deal with that. Time is fleeting. Let me deal with one more this morning. Can someone who hears the gospel before the rapture and they reject it, will they have the opportunity to get to accept Christ? For instance, you're sitting here this morning. You are hearing me talk about being born again, being converted, that you can't get into the kingdom without being born again. I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and go to 2 Thessalonians 2. 2 Thessalonians 2 uh, for this answer. Um, so you're here and the idea is if you leave and don't get saved and the rapture were to happen this afternoon there's a group of people who would say then you have no chance you you won't be able to get saved you won't be able to change your mind you either get saved now or when the rapture happens there's no chance for you to get saved it's kind of it's it's a done deal okay they base that upon this passage 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 where he is talking in this text about Antichrist. He is giving all kinds of details about him where he says uh, in verse 4, the one who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, that is worshipped. He will sit in the temple, verse 4. And then he talks about that idea that the wicked in verse 8 will be revealed. And I'm in verse 9. Even him, Antichrist, whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. For this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The context is dealing with Antichrist. I've mentioned that. It makes it very clear. Satan will empower Antichrist during the tribulation. A lot of deception. Tremendous amount of deception will take place. God says that the way he's going to punish some people is he's going to allow them to have stronger delusion. That's the punishment he'll put on. Kind of like Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then in time it says God hardened his heart. God just let it go. Let it go even more. And so the same thing is happening in this, in this passage that people will, their hearts will become more and more hard, that basically the Holy Spirit's not going to convict them anymore. They're just going to be overcome by the delusion that God will allow that to happen. Why is that? Because it says, those who believed not the truth. Somewhere in this text, they didn't believe, therefore they're going to be deluded and God will give them strong delusion. The question that you have to ask is, when did they not believe? The passage doesn't, isn't clear. It doesn't clarify for us specifically. When didn't they believe? So some have concluded 
if they didn't believe prior to the rapture. Others look at the text and say, um, the unbelief comes during the first part of the tribulation, when Antichrist arrives. And as they're seeing, if they didn't, if they started to just listen to him to some degree and they rejected the truth that they were exposed to, and they rejected uh, accepting Christ during that first part of the tribulation, then not. Then they, they can't get saved. Both of the ideas, interpretations mean, hey, when you hear the truth, respond. Respond right away. Okay? And I, and I will admit this, I, I'm, I, you know, to just be very blunt. If I were to say, you won't, if, if you don't get saved today and the rapture happens, there's no chance for you, that makes for really dynamic preaching. It makes for really strong preaching. You better get saved now or you won't have a chance. I am of, and this is my personal interpretation of the text, I think it's contextually, it's dealing with what's happening in the tribulation. And so that idea that they can't possibly get saved, I would say, you know, I can't be that dogmatic to say that that's true. But I can be this dogmatic, okay? I can be this dogmatic that if you have whatever reason you have for not getting saved now, you've got a whole lot going against you later on. The reason I say that is this, okay? Is if you reject Jesus Christ now and the rapture does take place, you have no guarantee you're going to survive the rapture. Do you realize when the rapture takes place, all the Christians are removed physically? That means people who are driving on the road. People who are flying planes, surgeons who are doing operations, they're going to vanish. People are going to be victims to what happens naturally when there's a vanishing. You don't know if you're going to survive that initial onslaught to say, well, I'll have a chance later on. Let me take a step further. You say, well, once I see that all happening, then I'll know it's true. You know it's true because thus thus saith the Lord. Okay? To say I need some experiences, that's what the rich man in hell said his brothers needed. And Jesus said, "Uh uh-uh. If they have the word of God, they have the law and the prophets, even if somebody came back from the dead, they wouldn't believe. You don't know if you will see anything clearer once that tribulation gets going and Satan is running amok and the deception is so huge. You have no guarantee you're going to figure it out. You have no guarantee that that you are all of a sudden not going to be deluded. In fact, whatever reasons you have, I don't want to get saved today. If I get saved today, um, my family will be opposed to me. And and I don't want to disappoint family. Well, in the tribulation period, you're going to have more people opposed to you to get saved. You're going to have more more pressure against you. If somebody says this, they say... um, um, I don't want to get saved because it might affect my job. Well, in the tribulation, you can't buy or sell unless you become a follower of Antichrist. All the, all the, uh, the challenges, all the, the excuses for not getting saved will be compounded in the tribulation. This is the easiest time in all of history to get saved. This is the time when you have no doubts. If you get saved right now, you will be in the rapture. Why would you risk anything different? This is the day of salvation. This is the accepted time. 
This is when you should get born again. This is when you settle the doubts. Not later on, because you don't know if you have it later on. You have no, no promise. But you have the promise right now that this is the moment you could get saved. Would you take advantage of it? Would you ask Christ? We're having staff go right over to those side doors right there. And in a moment when I pray, the staff will be there. You can get up and go and talk to the staff members. They will show you from the Word of God what you have to do to get saved. Those of you listening, you can call us, you can write us. We'll come by as soon as possible. We'll talk with you. We'll show you from the Bible how you can be sure that you're on your way. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. We're praying to the Lord. Those of you who need to know, why don't you find out right now? Oh God, thank you for these folk. Thank you for their input of questions. Thank you for their wisdom. Thank you for their friendship. Thank you for their attentiveness. But God, I pray, thank you for the Spirit of God that's working in hearts even now. If there's any one, two, three, four, five who aren't sure they're on their way to heaven, please, God, woo, work in their heart. Help them to respond, not to leave without knowing. If there's some who are listening, I pray, God, please work in their, their spirit so that they would make sure that they're on their way to heaven. We know that your word says these things have are written that you can know that you have eternal life. I pray from the depths of my heart that every single person here in this room knows for sure without a doubt that they're on their way to heaven. Please, Lord, if there's any who doubt, let them take care of it this day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we'll deal with some more of those questions. Thanks for being here.